This is an ABC podcast. G'day, Dr. Ann Jones. Christina Zdenek here. So this is a story that might disgust some people, so fair warning. But look, it did happen, and this is just how things go sometimes in the field. Hello, Ann Jones here, and this is Off Track, with another set of OH and S incident reports from nature lovers across Australia and the world. Yep, it's another episode full of fieldwork fails. Take it away, Dr. Christina. So about 10 years ago, I got an invitation from a friend of mine. She was researching little penguins on Phillip Island. And I jumped on the opportunity, took a flight down there, and for six weeks, I got to live in the research center and interact with all these other cool biologists and go out every single day handling little penguins and you know collecting data that would help for their conservation. Just a fantastic opportunity. I was just like living the dream, right? So in the beginning, first few times I was going out, they gave me the opportunity to go out there with somebody who'd been there for about two and a half decades. I thought, oh, you beauty. She's the one to ask, you know, any questions. So Leanne was her name. And first question I asked her, have you seen any tiger snakes? She's like, no, I haven't. But apparently you can occasionally get them in these burrows. This is where the little penguins nest on land. They dig these burrows and this is where we're going around and measuring the chicks from. And I thought, oh, wow. Well, have have you ever encountered a tiger snake, you know, in, in these burrows? And she said no. I thought, oh, well, two and a half decades, it's, you know, very unlikely for me to, to encounter one. And so although they provided us with these, you know, thick gloves to protect our hands in case there is a tiger snake, um, I opted not to use the gloves and just to be able to have the dexterity and, you know, that the feeling of the chicks and being able to grab them in the way that I wanted to in order to pull them out of these burrows. And so I'm going along with Leanne one day and we're, you know, putting our hands and, and arms down these burrows and um, you normally get a, a lot of retaliation from the chicks inside. You know, they, they think their life's endangered, right? So they start pecking at you and they've got this sharp hook at the end of their bill and I've got plenty of scars on my hands from this. Um, and, and they're just squawking with this like loud call and it's right in your ear because you you're you're like lying down on this hillside and you're reaching into these burrows and your ear is just sort of right there and it's just like loud in your ear they're pecking at you this and that well I was on about the fourth burrow of the day and lying down go to reach inside and I'm not getting any of this retaliatory response like I normally do and I thought oh that's a bit odd but on occasion, the chick just goes into like this crypsis and goes quiet and just sits at the back, right? So I thought, oh, maybe this is what's going on. So I like reach as far as I can, just deep into the burrow, shoulder deep. And, and on this occasion, my hand just goes like wrist deep into this almost completely liquefied, disgusting, decaying, dead chick body. Uh, this poor thing must have died like several weeks ago and there's my hand sitting inside inside its decaying body I of course remove it immediately take it outside and sure enough I look at my hand and it's just got like blood and innards and maggots and I'm just like oh my gosh trying to like prevent myself from throwing up here and gagging and you know I pour some water on it as, as much as I could 
spare. You know, we still had field work to do for the day, and and it was still you know goop on there. I'm just trying to like rub it off on the grass nearby. I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe this just happened. Okay, mark the field notes. Yeah, definitely dead chick. And yeah, sure enough, thereafter, I did, I did start wearing a glove because that was just too disgusting, really. <laughs> Siri, insert vomit emoji. And birds gave Dr Phoebe Burns a bit of a hard time as well, for an entirely different reason. A few years ago, we wanted to see how smoky mice were doing in a particular gully off of Mount William in the Grampians. This gully was extremely steep and extremely hard to access. We had to struggle through scratchy vegetation slide down rock faces and attempt to remain upright while descending crumbling boulder screes, all navigated while carrying packs full of traps. The traps we were using were Elliot's, which are basically little aluminium boxes held together by metal pins. They have a treadle mechanism inside that shuts the door when stepped on by a mouse. The mouse has been lured in by the smell of delicious peanut butter, oats and golden syrup and ends up locked inside the trap with some warm, cosy bedding and tasty food, waiting for someone to come and let it out in the morning. We set a line of 50 traps down this gully, and just setting it felt like an accomplishment. It was that much of a challenge. Our work finally complete, we managed to climb back out of the gully and headed to camp for the night. The next morning, we climbed down into the gully, excited to see all the little fluffy faces in our traps. We got to the side of the first trap, but the trap wasn't there. It had been thrown several metres away. The pin that held it together had been torn out, the bedding strewn on the ground, and the bait gone. Finding a long, thin metal pin in a mess of prickly vegetation, dirt and rocks is not fun. We put the trap back together, popped in some fresh bait, and tucked it back into a safe and secure hiding spot. Moving on to the next trap, we were faced with the same picture. Trap open, pin thrown who knows where, and bedding tangled in the prickly bushes. In all, there were only three or four of our 50 traps left standing. The worst part was that a lot of the time, the bait was still there. Whoever had done this wasn't even doing it for the food, they just enjoyed dismantling traps. We made it to the end of the line, traps reassembled and tucked into the best hiding spots we could find. We headed back up the line out of the gully, dismayed, but hopeful that we might catch some mice tomorrow. About five traps up the line, it had happened again. A trap that we had reset no more than 15 minutes ago had already been torn apart. As had every other trap on the line. The culprits were looking down at us from the trees, watching our every move and sneaking up the line behind us. It was the ravens. This is actually a pretty common issue that has plagued me and many other researchers over the years. Sometimes ravens make sites entirely untrappable, even if you wait months or years between attempts. Other times the ravens come for a day and then leave you alone. To be honest, I'm begrudgingly impressed. Some humans struggle to pull the pin out of an Elliot trap. For ravens to do it without hands is pretty remarkable. Hello, Dr. Anne. 
This is Mal Jones with a contribution to your shout-out for workplace stories with the theme of When Things Go Wrong. I worked for more than 20 years as a marine geologist in Queensland. Most of the field work comprised echo sounding and seismic profiling, scuba inspections and superficial and sub-seabed sediment sampling. The last activity was completed using a diver-operated coring device that we had constructed. The corer was a single-use aluminium tube four to six metres long with a pneumatic vibrator on the top. The vibrator had a supply hose for compressed air, a second hose to exhaust air back to the surface and a third hose for a vacuum line. The air and vacuum lines were connected to a compressor and a vacuum pump on the boat. There was also a rope tethering line to enable the corer to be retrieved. We operated the corer by using a diver to descend with it down a rope extending from the boat to a weight on the seabed. This was called the shot line. The corer had to be kept upright so that it would arrive at the bottom with the tube vertical. The diver would then turn on the air feed to start the vibrator and keep the corer as close to vertical as possible while penetrating the seafloor. It was a lovely day off the eastern side of Bribey Island. The visibility was not very good, at little more than two metres. On this day, I was the diver in the water with the task of lowering the corer to the bottom. With all those hoses and rope connected to the vibrator, things sometimes became a little untidy. I began my descent, one hand holding onto the shot line, the other holding the corer, which was reasonably heavy. One arm up, hand grasping the rope, the other fully extended down with the corer. On descent, a diver must equalise the air pressure in the sinus passages. This can be done by squeezing the nose and blowing gently, or some divers can do it automatically, hands-free, by moving the jaw in a certain way. This is how I normally did it. But today it was not working, and the pressure was increasing, verging on being painful. But with arms outstretched in opposite directions, and both hands engaged, there was no way I could reach my face to use the traditional technique. I stopped the descent and hung onto the rope for a moment. The corer was too heavy to lift with one arm, and I didn't want to let go of the shot line with the other, as the pain in my ears was becoming strident. So I let go of the corer, which raced for the bottom and disappeared. Not that I noticed much, as remember those hoses? When the corer went down, it dragged the hoses after it. In an instant, they were pulling past my face. My scuba regulator was ripped out of my mouth. I made an immediate decision to make a free ascent, no more breathing, back to the surface. This requires returning to the surface at about the same rate of ascent as that of the rising air bubbles and remembering to exhale on the way, but not too much. Don't want to run out before getting there. It was not a time to panic. I broke the surface in the midst of a mass of bubbles as the broken hose continued to free flow. My astonished colleagues turned the compressor and vacuum motors off and threw me a rope to bring me back to the boat. When I thought about the incident later, I realised there were quite a few ways it could have ended very badly. Remember, if you've got an epic close call, let me know. 
Email me at offtrack at abc.net.au. And now, for the second instalment of reasons not to put your hand in a hole on Phillip Island. Hi everyone, my name is Karina Sorrell. I'm from the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria and I'm here to share my story from when I was bitten by science. So during the summer of 2017-2018, I was completing the fieldwork for my honours research project with Phillip Island Nature Parks and Monash University. What we were doing was we were conducting a population census to get an idea of the numbers of Australian fur seals for all of the state of Victoria. So one of our counting methods involved catching the pups, which of course the pups were not a fan of. We were working long days in the seal colonies and would often catch hundreds of pups in one day. It's pretty full on work, so we would often be exhausted by the end of the day. It comes as no surprise that I was bitten quite a few times during the season. One pup, though, got me particularly well when I stuck my hand into a hole between some boulders to fetch him out. So I was aiming to take hold of my target seal's hind flippers, but I had no idea that this little pup had a mate hiding right next to him. So the mate decided to latch on to my forearm and that was how I pulled him out of the hole. So that's 15 kilograms approximately of seal pup just hanging from my arm. Pretty uncomfortable. The seal puppies have teeth that are like little needles so you can imagine the nice puncture that was left in my arm when he decided to let go. And although my arm swelled up and changed from shades of blue to purple to yellow in the coming days, and I still have scars now, really, who can blame them? Thanks for listening, everyone. your program. My name's Alex Dudley and I'm an ecologist. Uh, and in 2011 I was working as a frog survey officer in Tasmania, looking for extant populations of the Tasmanian tree frog. This is a species that has undergone a substantial reduction in populations because of chytrid fungus, which is knocking amphibians out all over the world. The job involved driving along remote roads uh, very late at night in southwest Tasmania, stopping every now and then at places where the frogs had been previously recorded and listening for them. I was also stopping at places where they hadn't been recorded, just at random and listening for their distinctive calls. Um, and the reason we were doing this is because there's very little known about this particular species of frog. Uh, we don't know whether females shelter during the day. We don't know how far they disperse. We know that the males congregate in pools, permanent pools, and they all call and they try to outdo each other uh, to bring in the girls. And if they get too close to one another, the males, they'll wrestle. But we don't know where they're sheltering during the day. There's a lot of information we didn't know. Anyway, so we're trying to map these populations and 
I'm driving back along the Lyle Highway very, very late at night. It was raining, it was windy, there were leaves all over the road and I'm driving along at about 50 kilometres an hour, peering through the, the windscreen wipers and the rain and at the very last moment I saw a frog a big green frog amongst the big green leaves on the road and I swerved to try to straddle it and I ran straight over the top of it and I went running back and I found this very flat very dead Tasmanian tree frog this is the species that I'd been paid to basically try to get information on to conserve it um, I was horrified, as you can probably imagine, and at least I had another location for where the frog occurred, and at least I had a specimen, so I guess it wasn't all bad. <coughs> yeah, no frogs were harmed in the making of this podcast. <clears throat> Cannot guarantee that about the scientists, though. Hi, I'm Rebecca Grono again, a PhD candidate in the Quantitative and Applied Ecology Group at the University of Melbourne. I study monitoring and modelling techniques to improve threatened species outcomes, and I've been handling mammals for over a decade, so you'd think I'd be good at this by now. Excluding many Antichinus and Dunnarts, who, despite their determination, cannot break my skin, I've only ever had blood drawn once. The culprit? A booty. The name derived from the Nyungar language of the Southwest. They're sometimes also called burrowing betongs. So on this night, I'm at Aradakovri, a fence reserved near Olympic Dam, South Australia, and I've watched yet another glorious Central Australian sunset as we finish setting traps before the booties emerge from their burrows. I find myself sitting on top of a sand dune in the dark with only the light of my head torch and the glow of the nearby mine. It would be silent except for the mine's constant din and the occasional grunt of betong communication. I'm performing checks on the 20-something betong of the night. Other betongs hop around us some coming up close to hoping for a scrap of peanut butter bait ball. I kneel with the betong comfortably wedged between my knees. The check proceeds smoothly as usual. Apply an ear tag, flip it over to measure and feel its tail. The fatter the tail, the healthier the macropod. In this case, a female, I check for any activity in the pouch. It's the end of summer, so few have started breeding. Usually it would be time to release, but for my PhD, we're testing new monitoring methods. So with my knees no longer able to support me, I spread my legs and sit on the now cool sand. I'm placing individual markings on each betong to see whether we can identify them on cameras. With the number applied, I would usually get to my feet to release the animal. But it's the middle of the night and I've been out here a few already. I open the bag. Often betongs will hop quickly away or sometimes they hang around and need a little extra encouragement. This one comes out of the bag and, oddly for a first handling, sits for a second. Then she promptly performs a one-hop 180 and goes for my right inner thigh. I'm quite sure I would have sworn. Well, I did just give it a new earring and betongs will eat anything and my button thighs probably look the best they ever have after traipsing up and down dunes for days. I can't blame it on the booty. G'day, my name's Dr Kate Grarock and I used to work in a sanctuary and we were reintroducing the eastern quoll. Now this was a pretty new experiment so we're all learning as we're going and when you first put the quolls into the sanctuary they take a few days to settle down, they move around looking for really nice habitat. 
But after a couple of days, they tend to settle down and live happily ever after. But during those first few days, it's all hands on deck. Everyone's there following the quolls, tracking them, making sure they haven't left the safety of the sanctuary. Anyway, one day, this quoll turns up outside the sanctuary in someone's front yard. <laughs> I get this call and they're like, Kate, you've got to come help us. This quoll's in someone's front yard. We need to, we need to go and get it. You know, this is one of the first quolls we've caught, so we haven't quite perfected the technique at this stage. So we rock up trying to be all professional. I knock on the front door and I'm like, oh, hello, my name's Kate. I work at the sanctuary. You're very lucky to have this amazing creature in your front yard. And um, is it okay if we, you know, try and catch it and put it back safely in the sanctuary? And they're like, oh, yes. It was kind of clear at this stage that they weren't really nature lovers, but they were going to let us, you know, catch the quoll. So uh, we got, there's about three rangers turned up and it was me and another ecologist. So we put this big net over this hedge that was in the front yard. And um, the hedge is probably about hip height. Everything's cool. We've got the quoll inside. Now we just need to get our hands on it and actually catch it. So it's nice and safe. We're feeling pretty good. It's sort of one, two, three. We've got bags. We're ready to catch it. And the really cool thing about Australian wildlife is once they're in a bag, they're nice and calm. But until that point, there's a little bit of a, um, you know. <laughs> so one of the ranger goes to get it, boom, this quoll just moves so fast. It's just like pinging around in this hedge and we're like, holy cow, it moves so fast. And now just a little aside here, at that stage in my life, I was training with the Australian goalkeeper to be um, a soccer goalkeeper. So just to say that my reflexes were pretty highly tuned at that stage. This quoll comes flying out of the bushes, hits me in the chest, bounces back into the hedge in the time my hands slowly shut close and I absolutely missed it. It's zooming around in the hedge, there's profanities going everywhere. Finally, vroom, freeze frame, the quoll is up on one of the ranger's shoulders starts moving in, boom, everything's going again, going again, going again. Then the quoll comes out in front of me again. Boom, I jump down on top of it with a hessian sack. It's under the hessian sack. It's nice, it's calm, beautiful. Okay, we've got it. Quoll's safe, everyone's safe. One of the rangers comes over and helps me pick it up and he, he grabbed it properly, but somehow this quoll's head turns around <laughs> and boom, its fangs sink into the flesh between his forefinger and his thumb and its jaws are just going up and down, sort of gnawing on him and you can see its canine, which would be, I don't know, maybe about a centimetre long going in and out, in and out. Nang, nang, nang. And he's like being pretty calm about it. At this point, I look over at these lovely people who have let us use their front yard and the woman's mouth is dropped open and they've kind of squished together in comfort over the scene that they're watching. Anyway, the ranger's in a lot of pain and he starts to sort of holler a bit. He sticks his thumb, this is how much I must have heard him, he sticks his own thumb inside the quoll's mouth to pry it open. <laughs> get those canines out of that fleshy part of his hand finally let's go and we've got it and we're about to put it in the bag and then the the other ecologist she was holding the bag open and she actually happened to be wearing a white pair of jeans that day and this is <laughs> this is important because as the quoll's going in the bag whoof, it lashes out and it bites her on the thigh of her white jeans and 
poof, this red ring of blood just sort of circles out from her um, <laughs> jeans as she lets this blood curdling, almost curlew like, <laughs> and so the qualms got her by the leg. Thankfully, let's go very quick. Boom, it's in the bag. Nice and safe. Qual's gonna live another day. All this calamity has happened and then I walk over to the lovely owners of the house and I'm like, oh yep, so um, here's my card. If you would ever like to come on a, a free tour of the sanctuary, just give me a call and we'll, we'll set you up with that. Now, needless to say, I never heard from these people, ever. Eh, you win some, you lose some. Thanks to Kate, Rebecca, Alexander, Karina, Mel, Phoebe and Christina. And if you've got a disaster story from the bush, then make sure you record yourself on your phone and send it in. We've still got more to come, so don't be shy. It's all good fun. My heart rate, oh, I don't know, it would have pushed a hospital monitor off the scale, I think. But we did manage to come close to a small town called Humpty Doo. Freshwater crocodile come up. Not what I had originally planned. I was seven and a half, eight months pregnant and... Um, so whenever I needed to go pee or something else, you'd have to, like, scan for cars. And despite wearing the welding gloves... Never saw too many snakes. I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track and in the next episode, I'll be taking you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.